Blog Talk Radio. Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics. And your source for the social, economic, and political impact of public policy on the African-American community. Your host, Kelly Michael Williams, is a political strategy veteran with an undefeated campaign record and the political experience that spans 20 years, from Mayor Willie Brown in California to President Bill Clinton in our nation's capital. So get ready for a fresh and honest approach on the politics that affect you and your family the most. Now, your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Good evening and welcome to the show. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. Today we have, a, once again, a very special show that uh, we are excited about and we're excited to have uh, the opportunity to share with you the, the uh, things that are going on uh, across the world, across the globe, and we're just excited to have uh, uh, this time with you. As you know, uh, today is the celebration of a world icon, a uh, human rights, a humanitarian, a, a civil rights uh, global figure. And tonight we're going to take a look into the, the past, the present, and the future of the legacy of this icon. Because uh, throughout the day, many of us have been celebrating the memorial services of former President Nelson Mandela and what he has meant to the United States, South Africa, uh, the globe, because he certainly affected so many countries, so many citizens, uh, so many people around the world that he transcended uh, peace as we know it. He transcended uh, what it meant to compromise, and, and at the same time, he, he led with a, a strength that not many, if any, could probably follow or do anything that, uh, in the future or before him. Uh, President Mandela, after spending 27 years in prison, emerged in the midst of an apartheid South Africa to then become president of that same nation that imprisoned him and transcended and transformed what uh, uh, many would have say, what, what many would say is, is, is I, uh, a, a total, you know, uh, revolutionary uh, feat because truly who has ever been imprisoned in their own country for life, he actually had a life sentence through protests, through the United States, through different uh, uh, countries, and through the citizens of South Africa fighting and, and, and looking to release him and get him free. He is freed from prison, and a year or so later, he's then elected president of South Africa, and he stays in power for one term. Now, how many of us would do that? How many of us would not only get free for prison for a crime we didn't commit, only because we're black, be in prison for 27 years, continue to fight, come out, not bitter, but better, and come out embracing those who imprisoned him and even the people who watched him while he was in jail and invite them to the table, to the party. And I think it's best said is the Bible says that I will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemy. And I remember one time uh, Al Sharpton, when he came to uh, my church uh, doing just before the inauguration, in fact, it was the inauguration celebration, I remember him saying that he was so um, glad that when he got the opportunity to go on MSNBC and get his, his show, came on at 
6 o'clock as opposed to 5 o'clock. And he said he was so happy about that because at 6 o'clock, those who were against him would be home to watch him. And I find that so remarkable that Nelson Mandela, at age 75, is elected president of this country after spending nearly three decades in, 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 in prison. And then today or last week, we find out that he passes away at age 95. But he lived a full life. And the irony of apartheid for me is when I visited South Africa uh, two years ago, is that apartheid was a lot like our slavery, but apartheid started in 1949. I mean, excuse me, 1948. And you think about that. 1948, it, 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 it started, and I think it uh, about 1990, 1990, I think, uh, 92, uh, 91, 92, when uh, it, it finally ended. But it started in 1948. And I have to tell you, when I was there, when I was going through the prison uh, and going through the different areas and, and reading the information that was there, it was amazing to me how it, it, it uh how this whole thing came about. But I'm, I'm so excited tonight because I, I have a gentleman who, who is my guest tonight who not only uh, has been there, done that, and experienced so much, but he, he himself uh, uh, has led the fight uh, against the uh, apartheid um, here and, and uh, has done a, a, a wonderful job at at uh, speaking out against the things that uh, the injustices, uh, not only South Africa, but America and, and across the globe. And uh, he's currently uh, pastoring here in Washington, D.C. And I want to welcome to the show uh, Pastor Grayland Hagler. Pastor Hagler, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you so much. How welcome are you tonight? to the show, Pastor. I really appreciate you uh, joining us tonight and, and uh, being a part of this. I, I know that uh, you yourself have probably been watching and, and listening and uh, getting all the uh, updates and information on, on what's going on in South Africa. And I, I know that uh, the things that uh, have been done and said have certainly uh, uh, probably brought memories for you and, and, and shed some light. Well, where we are today, I think that's some of the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, Pastor Hagler is a senior minister for uh, Plymouth Congressional United Church of Christ, and he is also the national president for Ministers for Racial, Social, and Economic Justice. And as I mentioned earlier, he's well known for his advocacy work uh, in the as he led the Free South Africa Movement to force divestures of dollars from the support of the apartheid system. So, Pastor, let me ask you, what, what, what are your feelings today? Uh, if, if you watched uh, President Obama speak this morning, if you had an opportunity to, to view some of the celebration that was going on in South Africa, tell me what your, what your thoughts are and, and what you're feeling. Well, one is, is that uh, we recognize that there was some tremendous accomplishment that took place uh, both uh, nationally in South Africa and internationally from movements that were around the country, around the world. I think one thing that very often gets left out and people forget is that Nelson Mandela would have simply been forgotten in jail if it had not been for a movement that was built and a network of ANC members that were intellectuals around the world, and many of them teaching at major academic institutions and organizing in those local communities. Uh, I remember people like Dennis Brutus uh, in Chicago, a poet in Chicago, South African, member of the ANC, uh, folks teaching at Harvard, folks teaching at other schools like that, who were able to really keep the message and the movement alive. Uh, because we must remember that nobody was able to hear from a Nelson Mandela. But we also cannot forget mm -hmm. Winnie Mandela, 
who kept alive right. the message and the vision uh, in the Bantu stands so that people would be able to uh, continue to respond and continue to agitate and organize. Uh, a friend of mine uh, wrote me an uh, email message uh, on the evening when the, uh, it was announced that, uh, that Mandela had passed. And he says, uh, I remember the many, many days we spent on the picket lines trying to uh, uh, outlaw the Cougaron coming into the United States. And he made that mm-hmm. mention, and, and it brought back memories because I think we manned the picket line for over a year and a half, day in and day out, through the winter, through the summer. We were there until uh, uh, that uh, Cougaron sales and basically sanctions against South Africa uh, was ordered. Uh, and also I remembered taking over uh, investment houses that invested money with companies doing business with South Africa. Uh, as well as uh, uh, taking over Harvard University at a point because they had a major portfolio that was invested in South Africa. So it was a matter of folks coming together, putting pressure, economic pressure on South Africa that actually ended up bringing it to the negotiating table. We must remember that the U.S. government, in terms of its official policies, was never helpful, never, ever helpful, to dismantling the apartheid regime. Reagan looked at uh, Mandela as a terrorist. Margaret Thatcher looked at Mandela as a terrorist. There seems to be a whole lot of suspicion and some, uh, and some evidence that the CIA was uh, very, very uh, engaged in bringing Mandela uh, to trial and getting that sentence, uh, the life imprisonment. So our hands were not clean. So it really took the people diplomacy. It took black elected leaders lifting up the issue of South Africa. It took poets. uh, uh, It took a whole movement around the world to keep that issue uh, alive uh, until South Africa was really brought to that point where it had to negotiate uh, with uh, a person they did not want to negotiate with. Yeah, talk about that because um, um, I was, of course, doing my research and doing some reading, and in that, it was noted that it was just recent. I think it was 2008 that um, President Mandela's name was taken off the terrorist watch list. List. Yeah, um, I mean that. Uh, I mean that. I mean that, that's the reality. That possible. Well, the how issue is, 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 is that is that something that was that something that where the government forgot he was there. Or was there well, something going on otherwise that that mandated that he be there because he was a part of the ANC? Well, that 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 was probably the whole issue uh, around that was that it was part of the ANC. Uh, the 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 U.S. government had uh, this uh, historical perspective of the ANC be, being infiltrated by communists and other folks. That that pressure uh, was really put on the ANC. Uh, uh, Bolta uh, had really talked about them as being communist influenced, uh, and that uh, and that the policy that they were talking about was really instigated by communists. Uh, all of those types of things. And so, one of the things that we we know is that in our past as a country, all you had to do generally was to say he's a communist, and everybody runs the other way. Uh, in fact, all the all right. dictators throughout the world, all they had to do was say to the United States, we're keeping the communists at bay, and therefore they would get big buckets of money handed to them by the U.S. government predicated upon that lie that they were keeping, quote, unquote, the communists at bay. That was the same thing that happened in in Haiti with Baby Doc and Papa Doc. That's what happened in the Dominican Republic with Trujillo. Uh, That's what happened in Cuba with Batista, saying that we were keeping the communists away, and so therefore... They were funded richly and carried out great levels of oppression uh, with those dollars. Uh, and it became very, very much uh, in undemocratic and fascist regimes funded by U.S. money. Uh, so we still have that same kind of formula that, that folks operate upon. Um, one thing that was important is a lot of those regimes, even today, that we have a lot of trouble with, were the first to support the ANC, in their struggle towards freedom. And when I say one of them, 
it was like uh, uh, President Obama shook hands with Raul Castro. Well, right. one of the things that they complained about when Mandela came out of jail was that a part of his freedom tour, he went to Cuba. He went to Cuba to Cuba. thank the Cubans, to thank Fidel Castro and the, and, the, and, and the presidency and the people of Cuba for keeping the whole anti-apartheid struggle alive. The United States said it's a shame that he's going to Cuba, right, and, 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 some, and, be, and wanted to denounce him because of that connection. Well, the reality is, is he recognized friends who had supported the movement, uh, no matter how the rest of the world or the U.S. looked upon those friends. Now, one of the things I, that's yeah, also found... important... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I said one thing that's important and that I get very, very worried about is that as I listen to the media talk about uh, uh, Mandela, uh, you know, and there's a part where they're trying now to re-narrate or, or, or make up a new narrative on, on Mandela. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing was that everybody acts as if they were opposed to the racist apartheid regime in South Africa, and they were outraged by it. Well, that was not the case. Uh, uh, people had that kind of racist viewpoint and propped up the government of South Africa, one, because it was good for business. In 1961, uh, Mandela began to rethink uh, the issues around nonviolence versus the armed struggle. And he settled down on the position that he was not going to limit the strategy that there were going to be protests and demonstrations, that there would be uh, nonviolent, but also the MK got set up, which was the armed wing of the ANC. And, uh, and in mm -hmm. fact, uh, Chris, Chris Hani was assassinated, who was the head of uh, the M MK. Uh, and, and, in fact, uh, uh, his, uh, uh, that was the first time when after Mandela had been released upon the assassination of Chris Hani that... Uh, that Mandela went before the audience in South Africa to ask for calm because Chris Hani was greatly loved uh, in South Africa, particularly by many, many of the young people. And, uh, and his assassination uh, nearly exploded the country in a bloodbath if it was not for Nelson Mandela who averted it. What do you think um, was the greatest... Um, what was the greatest, uh, uh, I guess, policy that came out of Mandela becoming president? We know that he changed the uh, South Africa's constitution to try to embrace and to, to, to end the apartheid and then embrace uh, opportunity for many of the black South Africans. What do you see outside of the, the, the uh, rewriting of the Constitution? What are some of the things that came out of Mandela's uh, legacy, if you will? Well, I think that there was one thing, which was that uh, people, average everyday people, can actually change the world uh, because it was a people's movement that developed worldwide uh, because of that mm -hmm. network of ANC members. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. the other... Uh, thing that uh, took place was clearly a vision that uh, that folks, when they come to power, do not have to do those who were in power did to them uh, to sort of break the cycle of violence uh, to to try to move into a, a a new paradigm. I think that was important in South Africa. White South Africans were afraid to death. Uh, that uh, because of the way they had treated black South Africans and the ways they had treated colored South Africans, as they called them, uh, that there was going right. to be a, a backlash and a, a climate of vengeance and revenge when they came to power. Uh, and so, uh, and, and, and that was there because the anger was natural. People had been uh, oppressed severely in South Africa. In fact, most people don't even know that Gandhi starts his civil rights career in South Africa. He's deported from mm. South Africa, uh, and he enters back into India with the, with the feeling that he was going to work to remove uh, the British from occupying India, because at that point they were in power in, Southern, in South Africa. 
and and so you know the fact is is that those colonies in in, in southern Africa uh, were were places where one uh, whites were had come in and taken over and were severely afraid of the majority of black people and then they also imported folks from their other colonies who were also people of color and uh, and, and they were definitely afraid of them as well uh, that was the whole thing of creating black and then colored which was to try to stratify the culture to make one group think that they were better than the other group and so that one group who was colored would also be engaged in the oppression of those who were blacks and at the same time the white folks were uh, oppressing all of them uh, and so it was really the political analysts uh, the folks who looked at the historical moment and what was going on that began to not only demythologize uh, 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 the um, the racial stratification, the racial issue of superiority versus inferiority, uh, and began to reach beyond that. That's, that's why the ANC was had colored people in it. The ANC had black folks in it. Uh, it was it was a place where people recognized that there was a commonality in the struggle, and if they were victorious, there was going to be a commonality in the victory. Yeah. You're listening to Black Politics Today, and my guest today this evening is Pastor Graylin Hagler, and those of you who are listening via web, certainly you can join the conversation. You can call in at 714-242-5143. Again, that's 714-242-5143. So let me ask you, Pastor, in in thinking about, well, not thinking about, but looking back at the the United States, position and, um, I guess, uh, 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 relationship with the South African government and, and, and looking at it. Sec, uh, former um, Treasury Secretary and, and former Chief of Staff uh, James Baker says that he believes that uh, President Reagan regretted vetoing the, uh, the uh, uh, sanctions against South Africa. Uh, when Congress and, and uh, Senator Ted Kennedy uh, had proposed that the uh, sanctions be placed on South Africa because of apartheid. What is your view? Do you think that President well, Reagan truly regretted vetoing that bill, even though no, it was overridden part, by Congress? No, that's a part of changing the narrative. Reagan said that he believed that sanctions against South Africa was going to hurt the very people they were, they were intended to help. That was a political cover. The reality was that uh, the racists uh, had band together to try to protect themselves from the encroachment, uh, uh, the, the, the ensuing uh, movement. Uh, Reagan truly believed that uh, uh, South Africa needed to be supported. When folks called for sanctions, he called for, if I can use his term, constructive engagement. Uh, and, and that was, again, political cover because what uh, constructive engagement meant was that you, you, you supposedly put more money into South Africa and you, you encourage those companies and, and those enterprises just to be more humane uh, to the black people that you're inhumane to. Uh, it was all a phony political cover. Those of us, uh, when we when we heard him say it, we we knew that it was really the idea that the racists were banding together, uh, and they were trying to protect uh, themselves from the inevitable. And the inevitable was going to be that the systems were going to fall. Uh, he made this statement after just about every single church group, every single denomination had already voted and act on, acted on sanctions themselves against South Africa. Um, that, that, that's the piece. Um, the, you know, the other thing is that we got to also remember this, is that Reagan made the, the reference that uh, they were simply struggling in South Africa with the way we have struggled with, the gym, with, with segregation in our own country. Well, you know, the, the, the issue is that that's what... Uh, that's how people want to justify it and look at it uh, when, when it wasn't a mild struggle for us here in this country. 
and it wasn't a mild struggle for folks in South Africa. The difference in this country is numerically black folks were the minority. In South Africa, right. it was worse because black folks was the majority. Uh, and so Correct. black folks Correct. being the majority, you can, if we understand the tools that were used against us in this country as the minority to keep us in our place, the lynchings, the hanging, the burnings, the burning down, the jailing, the Klan, all of that other type of stuff, to keep the minority in check, can you imagine what kind of brutal violence went into keeping the majority in check? Uh, it only gives you an understanding of how severe uh, this was. It, it it really does, because when I, I look at the numbers um, that they um, have, and this was um, some figures that I found, that the black population was 19 million compared to white population of 4.5 million. And the land allocation was 13% to 87% for white. Their share of the national income was less than 20%, where whites was more than 75%. And the minimal uh, income was 360 rands to 750 rands. And then they talked about the annual expenditure on education per pupil was $45 compared to $700. And a doctor to population was one doctor to 44,000 people and uh, for blacks and one doctor to 400 people for whites. There was a huge disparity. And like you said, African-Americans, well, African-Americans, Africans were in the majority and they created apartheid to keep them in a minority so that they can keep the riches and keep the, the uh, natural resources to themselves. I, right. I, I, when I was there, when I was in South Africa and I started reading this and seeing this, it was just amazing to me, as I mentioned earlier, that apartheid didn't start until 1948. Right. It was 1948 when it started, and it started as a result of the, 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 the white minority realizing that the black majority could use all these resources. Diamonds, diamonds is a rich, rich uh, 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 commodity in South Africa. I mean, that's where you mm-hmm. had the, the movie Blood Diamonds. Blood Diamonds was filmed right. there, and, and it talked about the, rich, uh, the richness of their, their soil, their, their uh, minerals, the idea that they needed to then put these sanctions out just like slavery. And I, I oh. wanted to ask, do you think that the, there was some realization of what was going on in the United States and that they can, too, do that there in South Africa? Did they use us as an example to start apartheid? Well, one of, one of the things is to remember, as I always remind folks, there's nothing new under the sun, uh, and that's biblical, uh, because what folks do is that, is that they end up just tweaking paradigms to fit their context, to fit the situation, and to create the, the kinds of control that they want to create. So it's like uh, segregation in the United States, apartheid in South Africa. Uh, uh, I remember I was in Cuba uh, a while back, and I was meeting with pastors down there, and one black pastor said to me, he says, the only reason I'm up here today, and this was in Havana, said, I'm, I'm, I, I'm meeting with you in this hotel, he says, uh, because this is an important meeting, but I vowed I never set foot in any of these hotels, so I broke my promise today, but I'm okay with it. He says, because when I was growing up, he says, you, if you were black like me, you had to have a pass in order to be in Havana after nightfall. The mm. black folks were relegated to the outside, and they were a servant class. That's what the revolution broke down. They were a servant class, and they had to have papers, just like past systems in South Africa, to be able to come into places like Havana uh, during the day and at night, and particularly at night. I mean, so what I'm getting at when I throw out that example is that you can see it's the same pattern, maybe tweaked a little bit differently, may be carried out a little bit differently, but it's the same thing because there's nothing new under the sun. These patterns of oppression exist, 
and are currently existing. Uh, I'll give to you Palestine, uh, issue in the church that we don't like to talk about too much, but we got an apartheid state that exists in, in, in terms of Israel versus Palestine, where Palestinians mm-hmm. are, are surrounded and, 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 and basically have been relegated to a servant class or deeply impoverished by the Israeli government with a security wall that surrounds them, that separates them from water, separates them from employment, separates them from medical care. They open up the wall when they choose to allow Palestinians to come through, and they close it down because they want to keep Palestinians out. Uh, and it's all, and checkpoints all over the place. And if you're Palestinian and you drive, then you've got to have a different color license plate than an Israeli uh, so that they can identify you on the road. Uh, that's the apartheid state. In fact, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela referred to that issue as an apartheid state. And Desmond Tutu in, in, in also has referred to that as an apartheid state. As Desmond Tutu said, he said, it's even worse. If, he said it's, even, it's as bad, if not worse, than even the apartheid we had in South Africa. Hmm. That's interesting to know because when we look across the globe in different countries, America, we always seem to see things, of course, or it is presented to us in, in, in such a different, a different light than what is actually there. I, I, my nephew is in Egypt, and uh, during the uh, recent uh, uprising after the, the uh, Brotherhood uh, president was, was put into office, um, all we would see, and we got concerned about him, so we, we contacted him, and, and you know, all we can see was the protests going on, and things are happening. And he said to uh, to me, he said, "Unc, what you're seeing is happening in like one little square corner of the of the of the uh, block that they're on. It's one street, and they're like at the end of the block of that street, and now at the other end of the block, everything is going on like normal day and normal business." But when we see it and hear about it, we hear and see so much different of what is actually there. And I say that mm-hmm. in, in, in how you, you talked about it. It's like that's going on in Israel and Palestine. And, and what are we doing about it? What's happening where our political alliances is with Israel, although we continue to try to make you know, make ends or make inroads with them to 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 be fair and just with with the Palestinians, but we still have those those uh, uh, barriers, those barriers that come up, and and in that, what what is it that is causing uh, these barriers to continue to exist, as opposed to them being broke down, uh, a show of peace and inclusion as opposed to still the separation that we have? Well, it's all predicated, again, uh, upon, upon business, uh, upon uh, who is operating industry, who is controlling the technology, who is manufacturing the technology. Uh, it's, it's basically business. In South Africa, it was gold and it was diamonds and it was the other minerals in the ground. The same thing with Mozambique, the same thing with Angola, the same thing with Zimbabwe. Uh, and uh, it was the same pattern that existed there, it existed in India, uh, it even existed in, in the Caribbean. Uh, as well as the Middle East, is all predicated upon those who are in business that they seem to have a pact with one another, that everybody's making money, the folks that are making money want to continue to make money at the expense of everybody else, and their attitude is that if they can keep uh, uh, generating money and producing things and not having to pay the bottom line, not having to pay salaries, not having to enfranchise people with the vote, not having to respect folks, uh, but they, if they can get away with it, that it's good for business. Even heard an analyst not too long ago to say, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 if, if we can find a good fascist regime, that's where we want to put our money because uh, the money is going to be more efficiently handled there. Uh, actually said that, just, <laughs> just like that. 
I mean, so it really gives you an idea of how these fascist regimes uh, operate and the alliances that they make in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, the issue in terms of, uh, of uh, Palestine and Israel is a severely important one. I'm, I'm going to Gaza in January. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll be uh, uh, spending some time uh, there, meeting with uh, groups and meeting with government officials, and uh, and all and all the different uh, on the ground organizations uh, to uh, get a to get a clear picture of what's going on. We're also been building uh, what we call the BDS movement in in this country and around the world. The BDS movement is 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 boycott. Uh, uh, divestment and sanctions against Israel over the issue of Palestine. It's the same structure, the same thing that uh, many, many Palestinian groups have been urging us to enter into uh, uh, that struggle. Uh, Unfortunately, very often the church gets caught up in what we refer to as Christian Zionism, that they think that Israel has a a right to quote scripture, but this is not the Israel of the Bible. This was established by those who came out of Europe. And in fact, most people don't even know that they first asked for what is now Uganda. And the African nation said, if you come into Uganda, there will be an uprising on this continent like you've never seen. And then basically the British and the U.S. and the French agreed that it could be this area that they controlled called Palestine. Hmm. Hmm. You're listening to Black Politics Today, and my guest tonight is Pastor Grayland Hagler. We're going to take a quick break, and on the back end of the break, I'm going to go ahead and start talking to Pastor about uh, this latest uh, arise, this, this, this latest issue of of another form of apartheid uh, that's happening in the Dominican Republic. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Black Politics Today, an eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source on social, political, and economic impact on public policy on the African-American community. Now, here's your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Welcome back to the show. Once again, you're listening to Black Politics Today. and My guest tonight is Pastor Grayland Hagler. And for those of you on the web and by phone, if you want to join the conversation or ask Pastor a question, certainly you can join us at 714-242-5143. At 714-242-5143. So, Pastor, let's let's dip into this uh, newly arising issue. Although it's not new to to many, but uh, certainly it's quiet. It, there's not a lot of media attention about it. Uh, although uh, when I did my research and, and came across it, um, it, it's certainly there's a lot of newspaper issues out there on it, but not a whole lot of television issues out there. And that's the Dominican Republic stripping its citizens of Haitian descent of their citizenship. Talk to us about that and, and, and explain to us what's going on. Right. I mean, the, the high court in in Dominican Republic ruled uh, that uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent, now I want to put the emphasis on Dominicans of Haitian descent who had uh, come into the country or their parents had come into the country or their grandparents had come into the country since 1929 should not be considered immigrants but are transients and and therefore being transients uh, they do not have to extend to them the rights and the privileges of Dominican citizenship and therefore they have stripped uh, roughly about a half a million uh, uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent of uh, their Dominican citizenship, basically making them a landless and a voteless people uh, in the Dominican Republic. Now, for, for years and years, there's always been this kind of undercurrent of discriminatory behavior 
uh, in the Dominican Republic, particularly in regards to Haiti. And that had a lot to do with the fact that when big sugarcane plantations were operative in the Dominican Republic, uh, they would bring in Haitians to chop the sugarcane, Haitians to do uh, the agricultural, pay them pennies, uh, basically keep them as a sort of a migratory and dispossessed population and uh, allow them to go back to Haiti uh, because they didn't necessarily have citizenship rights in the Dominican Republic. In fact, uh, Trujillo, who was the dictator uh, of the Dominican Republic, actually carried out a massacre against uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent. Uh, and, uh, and so there has always been this racial tension uh, between Haitians and those of Haitian descent in the Dominican Republic. And it's really something that's really serious with this latest move to dispossess a half a million uh, uh, Dominicans of Haitian descent of their citizenship, uh, because when I look around, I see a whole lot of black people from the United States going down and spending their money at resorts in the Dominican Republic uh, and, in, in, in a sense, uh, in, in ingratiating uh, the Dominican Republic with black dollars, even at the same time that the government operates in this way that they single out and, 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 dis, and, and, and disenfranchise a, a major portion of the population. Yeah, the, the, the idea that they're going to unilaterally just strip them of their citizenship for no other reason other than what I've been able to read and, and gather is simply because they're black. I mean, it, it really breaks down to the fact that they are a, a Haitian Dominican as opposed to a Dominican Dominican. I mean, is, I mean, is that something different than what we say is like okay, so we're African American as opposed to Asian American or or, or well, Latino American? Well, Dominicans have had a hard time uh, uh, with uh, uh, with the idea of African blood in them, and and you can mm-hmm. be Dominican walk walking around with kinky hair and dark dark skin, and still at the same time, out of your mouth, you're going to dare you're going to dare deny that you have African descent, uh, because mm-hmm. there's been this there's been this complex, and part of that historically comes out of the fact when, when, when Haiti won its freedom from France uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and abolished slavery there, there was, there was instantly uh, uh, one uh, sanctions put against the emerging, at that point, uh, Haitian government uh, and uh, by the former colonial powers in Europe and the United States, I might add, that basically economic, economically attempted to cripple Haiti from its beginning, uh, but yet at the same time they were operating slavery on the other side and on the other side of Hispaniola, which is where the Dominican Republic is, uh, because they basically share an island. That's to be, to be very honest. Uh, and right. uh, the Dominicans invaded. I mean, the Haitians invaded the Dominican Republic, uh, and basically it was in that time frame that they invaded and occupied the country and, and, and basically set up government in the country that slavery was abolished and there seemed to have been some real animosity and you, you can imagine from former landowners and plantation owners who began to try to instill this Haitian hatred, uh, this idea of Haitian inferiority uh, in uh, the Dominican minds and that seems to be a lingering historical complex so that when when the Dominican Republic, like the rest of the world, ends up in these hard economic times, having sold off their fields to foreign governments, the foreign governments have no need of, uh, of Haitian laborers uh, because they're into producing other stuff. And so you have this uh, Haitian uh, population, this Dominican population of Haitian descent around uh, there is this attempt to try to remove them from the society, remove them from the culture, remove, make them, uh, uh, remake them into a state of invisibility. And so that is what's been going on uh, around uh, in the Dominican Republic, plus this historical, this historical denial in the Dominican Republic of African roots. 
and that's that has been something that's been going on for years. Uh, I know the um, uh, there's an attorney out of Miami that is is either uh, heavily involved in the case um, uh, or or dealing with it, who said that um, their issue has been that the the Dominican is getting darker, and they're concerned that too many Haitians will bring about uh, uh, economic um, depression, if you will, as Haitian's economy. In, in other words, because Haiti's economy was so depressed that the more Haitians that you have in the Dominican, it's going to cause their economy to, to, to uh, uh, fall as well, but they just don't want their country to get any darker. Well, they don't, it's, it's the old thing that we heard growing up years ago in the black community, which was the attempt to marry lighter than you are so that you could lighten right. up the family. Right? I mean, that, we, we, we right. know that exists, and that, and that still exists, unfortunately, in the Dominican Republic. That's one thing. The other thing, in the Dominican Republic, they had no, they had no problems. They had no problems when they had black folks of, 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 of Haitian descent chopping the sugar cane in the sugar fields and doing all other kind of agricultural work, being the maids and the housekeepers that were basically paid pennies uh, to, to, uh, by Dominican families and treated any old way because obviously if you're inferior, which means black in, in, in the Dominican Republic, uh, you can be treated any old way. Uh, folks had no problem then when, when, when everything was going okay and you needed and they wanted slave labor and they wanted uh, uh, housekeepers that were going to accept pennies and cooks that were going to accept pennies and nannies that were going to except pennies, uh, but now that things have tightened up economically in a place like the Dominican Republic, just like throughout the whole world, uh, there's this attempt to try to expel uh, those darker people from the society predicated upon nothing else than that they don't want to now have to compete with Haitians for those jobs. All right. It's, a, it's, it's amazing and, and interesting to realize, and I think sometimes we do forget, is that there is a continual uh, theme and message across the globe in various countries that still want to keep black, if you will, suppressed and, and marginalized. They, they, there is a continual theme and presence in many countries, and even in countries where we would think would be our sister, our, our sister uh, uh, country and place, like you said, we, we vacation there every year, all year round, that mm-hmm. these uh, um, atrocities are, are, are still occurring. And, and, and I think of it in, in a 2013 um, mindset but I guess it even, even am I talking about it right now, it still has me going backwards thinking that this is 1940 or 1930 or 50 or something like that as opposed to 2013, 2014. You know, we're three weeks away from 2014 that this is happening and there's still this attempt to repress even something the things that we're dealing with here in the United States with voting rights. And, and, and having states take up laws and take up uh, positions that are saying, well, no, we have to check you out now because we've got to make sure that you have a right to vote. We've already passed that bridge. We've already gone through those poll taxes and, and how many jelly beans are in the jar and can you read and, and can you write before you can vote for this person vote we're we've already passed that but yet and still there are segments and it appears of every government every country to suppress and push black folks back and back and back what do you what 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 lesson or what should we be really thinking about and trying to 
realize that there is a strategic movement, if you will, here in the United States and obviously across the globe to continually push black folks back into the background and suppress them and, 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 and stop their ability to actually, you know, uh, gain wealth and, and position, if you will. What, 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 is, what is your thoughts about that? Well, I think that one of the things is that, first of all, we got to, just like I said earlier, there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, it continues to be a lasting uh, a way in which uh, uh, the world differentiates between one group uh, after another and the ways in which uh, they uh, have uh, uh, the structure, the stratified structure, so that people can always be oppressed by those who have defined themselves at the top and therefore everybody else beneath them. Uh, so first thing is that we've got to be absolutely vigilant uh, in, in our work and absolutely vigilant in terms of keeping the struggle alive. We've got to also realize uh, that the struggle, that's why the struggle in the U.S. Uh, for black folks is the struggle in the Caribbean for black folks. It is the struggle in Africa for black folks. It is the struggle wherever black folks are. Uh, one of the things is that uh, I've, I've, I've always rejected the idea of African-American because African-American basically uh, strips us of a historical understanding, and that historical understanding is that we didn't arrive on Ellis Island like German-Americans or Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans, but the, the, the vast majority of us were brought here as merchandise to be marketed, sold off, uh, and then after uh, slavery was no more to be disenfranchised and held in check. So my history is very different than an immigrant's history, <clears throat> an Ellis Island immigrant history. So I'm black, and therefore my black identity, it also resides in all the other black folks all over the world who are struggling. Uh, and, uh, and so in a, some ways, uh, uh, in my spirit and my mentality, I'm an internationalist because I recognize that what goes on around the world with people of African descent and against people of African descent also takes place here. And so there's nothing new under the sun. People just practice the same old thing and they carry it out effectively if we're not vigilant. I agree. I agree. I, I think we, we do have to be vigilant. And unfortunately, I think sometimes we we lose the tenacity at times to really uh, stick to the things, um, if, if you, for lack of a better word, stick to our guns and really push what is, is necessary and, and what we have to do. Because I, I know that during this time here in the States when, when uh, the, the laws were being passed to put in new voting rights laws, and things like that, there, there wasn't that uproar. There wasn't that outcry in mass um, in, in mass capacity. You know, there was mm -hmm. uh, a rumble here, a rumble there. You know, one talk show may have it. The next one wouldn't. Some people would talk about it. A whole lot of people wouldn't talk about it. And it never went anywhere. And quite frankly, had the Justice Department not stepped in, I think, in some of the state courts and some of the local activists in, in various parts of the country, not step forward and, and challenge those laws, uh, there would have been a whole different result uh, in the 2012 election, but there could be also a whole different result in the 2014 election and 2016 because they have not given up with their vigilance of trying to make sure these laws are enacted, whereas some of us have sat back and said, oh, okay, well, we beat that, and we're not looking over our shoulder to see that they're still coming out after us. That we're That's moving right. forward, and 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 I'm I'm afraid of what's going to happen, you know, 2014, 2016, because unfortunately, that mass movement that we had maybe in the uh, 60s and the 70s, and even in some parts of the 80s, is not as as as, as tight and vigilant as it used to be, um, and and something something that we need to be concerned with. So give us. Give us a, a parting thought of, of Nelson Mandela. Give us a parting thought of, of 
of this uh, issue in Dominican and, and, and feed us some wisdom of, of, of what can be done, what can we do here. I, I, I think I, I agree with you in terms of boycotting uh, the Dominican and, and spending our dollars there. If, if they don't want our people there, they certainly don't want our dollars there. I, I agree with that uh, 100%. Give us some wisdom that we can take home with us uh, um, before you leave. Well, I think that we need to practice the triple A's. The triple A's are stay awake, be alert, and agitate. we got to do all three of them together. Stay awake, uh, and, 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 and particularly the other one is important, agitate. Uh, because when we agitate, we, uh, that means that we're not comfortable. We're not at ease. Uh, uh, we're, we're not complacent, uh, and and basically, folks who want to do business as usual uh, wants to lull, want to lull people asleep, want to think, want to make want people to think that they've already sort of come through, uh, that they've already uh, have overcome, and all of that other type of stuff. But the reality is, we we we, we look around and we see that unless we are vigilant, uh, people will work to take it back. They will work to erode it. They will work to tear down any gains that have been made so that we got to continue to practice those triple A's uh, and, uh, and, and move towards uh, and, keep, and keep the paradigm towards freedom and, and the arc bent towards freedom. Well, Pastor Graylin, Hagler, I thank you. I thank you, thank you so much for taking the time and opportunity to, to, to talk to us, to educate us, to empower us and inspire us to understand and recognize that we must stay awake, we must be alert, and we must agitate because otherwise someone else might come in and take advantage of us. I want to thank you tonight and thank our listeners for joining us. I'll be right back with my final thoughts. I want to thank Pastor Grayland Hagler for his time and for his dedication in ensuring that those all around the world, especially here in the United States, can always have the freedom that we need. We'll be right back. Thank you, Pat. God, God bless you. You're listening to Black Politics Today. An eye for what's at stake in global politics and your source on social, political, and economic impact on public policy on the African-American community. Now, here's your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Thank you for joining us back. I just want to give my parting thoughts and, and comments. I am still just overwhelmed with the um, celebration for President Nelson Mandela. And I think about the whole apartheid issue and, and what went on uh, years ago. And, and, and the fact that it was 1948 is still astounding to me. And I can only say that when I was there for Omega Fest with uh, Bishop Jakes and uh, Noel Jones and Bishop Owens and, and uh number of Israel and, and, and I think uh, uh, Yolanda Adams and Mary Mary were there. It, it just was just so, so, I mean, awe-inspiring. There were thousands of people there. And I mean thousands. I mean thousands. They were up in trees. They were on top of, of, of porta-potties. They were on top of buildings. They were on top of each other on shoulders. The the kids were running around. It was just so inspiring. And at one point when Bishop Jakes was um, preaching or, or Noel Jones was preaching, in fact, it happened a couple of times after the first one, I actually turned and looked back and I saw all those people there. And I just felt so overwhelmed the fact that I was in South Africa. And if I tell you, stop going to Florida, start going to South Africa for your vacation. And certainly, don't set foot the Dominican. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for all being with me and joining me tonight. Until next time, we will talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Black Politics Today. 
an eye for what's at stake in global politics with your host, Kelly Michael Williams. Until next time, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook.